Now hear God's holy word from Matthew chapter 12 as we return to our study of the gospel of Matthew. Hear God's holy word. The Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there and great multitudes followed him and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet saying, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory and in his name, Gentiles will trust. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the life of our savior Jesus who in every way pleased you by keeping your law. He was filled with your spirit and he was uh, strengthened in the power of your spirit and worked and healed and cast out demons in the power of your spirit. And so by that same spirit, we pray that you would guide us into a right understanding of the works and words of our savior Jesus. Deliver us from every distraction. Deliver us from all error, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. People of God, the public discourse in America is presently dominated by reactivity. Someone will deliberately do or say something publicly provocative, and by provocative I mean they're looking to provoke a reaction, and then we as a populace, as a society, dutifully participate by reacting. And this sets off a chain reaction of reactions from all over the social and political spectrum. Reactions provoke reactions, which provoke further reactions. Everyone seeks to distinguish themselves by their various takes. And the debate quickly turns away from the original event to arguments about reactions. How quickly you reacted, what position you took, and the merits of your reactive argument. And this is all an extremely democratic process where everyone has the ability to effortlessly register their opinions publicly on their phones and on their computers. And be clear, we're reacting to occurrences and controversies which have virtually no impact on our lives whatsoever. And, and in doing that, we, we believe we have some investment in that, and we make our investment by bouncing our hot takes off of each other, our memes and emojis, and then just right on cue, trolls show up who deliberately trigger angry reactions for their own entertainment, for the entertainment of their audiences who are in on their jokes. This goes on and on and on until we spend all the fuel that the original event provided. We grow bored and we move on to the next thing. And there is always a next thing. There is always something else to get wound up about. This reactive compulsion, the news cycle and the social media churn that drives it, it's like a drug that keeps us coming back and coming back for more. Our brain gives us little rewards, little highs, things to be enraged over, things to be anxious over, things to react to. And then when we react, we feel as if We've contributed something to the conversation. We think we've done something when in fact we haven't. We've just stirred other people up to more reaction. When we are living in this mode, we aren't producing, we aren't 
leading, we aren't doing any substantial work in the world, and we aren't moving our own lives forward. We're just passively regurgitating the emotions that are stirred up inside of us, and we're being effectively distracted from our real responsibilities in life. These things can grow into obsessions that use up all of the precious emotional and mental resources of our lives, where we start to begin to blame forces outside of our control for why we're failing at life. It's all of these things that are way beyond our control, and all we can do is, you know, uh, post our takes on, on the internet about these things. When this develops into a lifestyle where we make decisions and operate off of not, not biblical principles, not foundational precepts of God's law, but just by bouncing from one overreaction to another. In this, we are being discipled in passive reactivity. There's no real strength in this. There's no real spiritual power in any of this. And in this kind of environment, it's refreshing to return to the Gospels and read about the fortitude of the Lord Jesus. Jesus was an unshakable force. He knew what he was about. He knew his mission. He had a secure identity grounded in the pleasure of his father. And even when he was confronted by all kinds of reactionaries and instigators and trolls, he doesn't give them what they're looking for. He doesn't take the bait. He doesn't passively allow his life or his priorities to be reshaped by the expectations of wicked men. He never reacts. He acts deliberately with purpose. And in this, he's the model of true strength. We don't often think that. If I ask you, what is the epitome of strength? And I'll even add to that, what is the epitome of masculine strength? You might think of, depending on what generation you're in, you might think of the Incredible Hulk or um, you know, He-Man or um, John Wayne or Clint Eastwood. You may think of something like someone like that, and you might think that is the epitome of strength. You would never, you would never think of Jesus. Why is that? Why would we not think of Jesus as the epitome of strength? Well, one thing that I hope that we can see as we continue to study uh, the book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, is that Jesus is the model of strength. Jesus is not shaped by passive reactivity. Rather, watch him work and watch how he is deliberate by everything and everything he says and does. He is in command and in control. When we paused our study of Matthew's gospel late last year, we were still relatively early in Jesus's public ministry. He's still up in Galilee. He hasn't moved down into Judea and Jerusalem yet. He's up north around the, pre, the, the fishing villages of Galilee, uh, preaching, he's healing, but the opposition from the Pharisees is increasing. They are intimidated by him. They are threatened by him, and so they work to turn the people off, to poison the well. And to do this, they've started making accusations against Jesus, all of which are unfounded, they're baseless, they don't make any sense. Right before this section that we're about to read today, they accuse him of violating the fourth commandment by healing on the Sabbath. And we need to be clear that Jesus never one time violated his father's law. We get a sense sometimes, and certain, certain preaching and teaching does this, that we think 
that Jesus came to kind of loosen up God's overly strict Old Testament law, that, that uh, Jesus was there to find loopholes in God's law or to show how it was really overbearing and his law was kind of inconsistent. No, 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 no. That Jesus did not come to abolish his father's law, but to fulfill it. What Jesus does undermine is the oral law tradition of the Jews, the, this weight of additions that they added to the law, those expectations are onerous and burdensome and obnoxious, and Jesus deliberately defies those. But the law of his father, he obeys perfectly, and he shows us what it's like to submit to the father and to obey the father. And, and just to remind us of this, Matthew quotes right here, he quotes the prophet Isaiah. Way back in Isaiah 42, Yahweh is speaking about his son. He's speaking about his Messiah. And he says this in, in Isaiah, Yahweh says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Way before the incarnation, the father is expressing his pleasure in his son. And then throughout the ministry of Jesus at various points, the father thunders from heaven, behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, hear him. The father is pleased with the son. Never one time is the father displeased with the work of Jesus. So what that means is you can always be confident that in imitating Jesus, you are always pleasing to the Father as well. You can never go wrong imitating the Lord Jesus. Isaiah continues, I will put my spirit upon him and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Jesus is the one on whom God's spirit rests. Jesus is the one who works in the power of the spirit. And Matthew quotes that here because that very thing is about to be called into question. What's about to be called into question is, in whose power is Jesus working all these miracles? Well, Isaiah says, in the power of the Spirit of God, Messiah will work. And he works to declare justice to the Gentiles, not a worldly justice. Um, twisted and demented men are good at taking Bible concepts and, and twisting them for their own purposes, and then we think we can't use these words anymore. There is something in the Bible called justice, and it is something we are to love and to pursue and to pray for, but it's not, it's not how the twisted and demented men in our culture use the word, word justice. It's not a worldly justice. It's a justice where the perfect judge of all the earth sets everything right. That's the kind of justice Jesus comes to establish. Isaiah continues, he will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. Jesus is not a showman. He's, he doesn't do stunts. He's not a pundit. He's not contentious. He doesn't complain about the resistance that he faces. He is strategic. He is always one move ahead. Jesus is active. He's deliberate. He frequently tells the people that he heals, and he just did this in Matthew 12. When he heals somebody, he says, oh, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Don't say a word. Don't talk about this. Why, why does he do, now they always end up talking about it, but why does he always say, hey, don't say anything to anybody. Don't talk about it. Because he is delaying the inevitable confrontation that is coming with the Pharisees. 
uh, they're already intimidated by him. And if these things start to mount up and, and start to accumulate, it's just going to accelerate the confrontation in Jerusalem. And Jesus has a lot of teaching to do. and He's got a lot of modeling and working out of his kingdom before his crucifixion. That's why he tells everybody. But the point is, is that Jesus is in the driver's seat. The beginning of this section begins with him withdrawing from one place because of the plotting of the Pharisees. If you're following along in Matthew 12, look at verse 14. The Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy them. Now, they are plotting against him, and he knows it, and he doesn't shut down. He doesn't fall into a deep depression. Jesus doesn't retaliate. The very next verse in Matthew isn't Jesus filled with bitterness in his heart, decided to fight fire with fire and plot the annihilation of the Pharisees. That's not what happens next. No, Matthew quotes this section from Isaiah to show that why Jesus is moving on. Jesus doesn't want this confrontation right now. He has a confrontation coming and that will come in his due time and he will be in charge of when and where that happens. And it's not here, it's not in this place, it's not with these guys. And so Jesus is in control and he keeps on doing his work. Uh, one, little, one more little piece from Isaiah that Matthew quotes. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. Jesus isn't running around Israel like a madman without any control over his tongue or without any control over his actions. He's not barging around like a rampaging bull in a vineyard. He's careful with the reed that is fragile and might break. He doesn't pinch out the wick that is smoldering and might go out. It's the Pharisees, it's the zealots who quarrel and shout. They grind people up and spit them out. Jesus comes with a stable, strong, quiet compassion. And he doesn't do anything in reaction or he doesn't do anything because he's been beaten. He moves in a deliberate way because he is bringing justice to victory, Isaiah says. He is bringing hope to the Gentile nations. What does that mean? It means he is on offense. He is there to save, to heal, to deliver Israel. He is not playing defense. He is not back on his heels. Well, Matthew quotes Isaiah to recalibrate us around the strength and the mission and the character of Jesus. Because right away, we have three episodes in a row which put all of this to the test, which, which bring all this into question. First of all, we're gonna see today, Jesus is accused of serving Satan and working in the power of Satan. Secondly, the Pharisees ask him for a sign and he doesn't submit to them. He doesn't give them a sign. And then thirdly, his own family tries to pull him off his mission. And Lord willing, we're gonna finish chapter 12 today and I will keep moving briskly. So verse 22, if you're following along, uh, read, read along with me. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw, and all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Remember, every time that Jesus heals someone in the Gospels, it's a commentary on the spiritual condition of Israel. Just like this man, Israel is overrun by unclean spirits. Just like this man, Israel is blind and mute. 
They, they're blind. They can't see clearly their own situation. They can't see who Jesus is. They're mute. They can't confess the truth. And uh, the commentary here is that Jesus is the one who can remedy these problems. Jesus is the one with the power to give you sight and to loosen your tongue and to run off the evil spirits. Well, he heals this man and everyone says, is this the son of David? Is this the king that Yahweh promised to us who would rule forever? Uh, the last time they saw someone like this who had this kind of power over evil spirits, it was David. David played the harp for Saul and it drove the demons away from King Saul. Now Jesus is the one driving the evil spirits away from Israel. And the crowds of people recognize he's just like David. He's, he must be the son of David. But the Pharisees are not happy with the foothold that Jesus is gaining. And they believe they need to stop him. Jesus is acting. Jesus is moving. Jesus is, is working. Jesus is taking initiative they, the Pharisees, are reacting, and they do it in the worst way possible by responding with false accusations. The Pharisees are the masters of the hot take. They've got a hot take. They're, they're bursting with crazy conspiracy theories, and here is, here's their conspiracy theory. Now, when the Pharisees heard it, verse 24, they said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. You see, they cannot deny that a power is at work. They can't deny that lives are being changed. They see a man who's in the tombs, uh, ranting and raving and cutting himself and out of his mind and throwing himself down on the ground. And then Jesus comes and now this man is clothed and healed and in his right mind. Something has happened. Something has changed. So, so there is a power at work here, but they cannot bring themselves to attribute the power of Jesus to the spirit of the living God. And so they think, well, this power must be coming from the devil, who they call Beelzebub. Beelzebub is kind of like a, a snarky, a kind of a jokey way to talk about Satan. It means, it's a play on Baal, Lord. Baal, he's a bale of flies or a bale of dung. He's a lord of flies or a lord of dung. It's what they call Satan. Um, they allege that Jesus in healing and casting out demons is actually doing some kind of dark satanic magic. Don't miss how grave of an error this is. They are attributing the works of Jesus to the power of Satan. Verse 25, but Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself how then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. If Jesus were being reactive, he would hear their accusations and he would validate their allegations. He would apologize for being misunderstood. Oh my goodness, I don't know what I've done to make you think this, to think that I'm actually working for Satan. Oh my, 
oh, I must be really messing up. Will you give me a chance to, to earn your trust? He would pursue them and beg them to believe, I really am a good guy. I'm honest, man. I'm not a bad guy. He doesn't do that. He doesn't apologize for what he's doing. He doesn't, he doesn't confess anything to them. He does the opposite of that. What does Jesus do? If you could summarize his statement there, what does he say to the Pharisees when they say, oh, he's casting demons out by the power of Satan? Jesus looks at him and says, do you, do you realize how dumb you sound right now? Do you stop and think about what you just said? Do you understand how stupid that is, what you just said? That, I mean, that's really idiotic. That's really ridiculous. Why would Satan cast out Satan? Just think about what you just said. How does it help Satan to bring down his own kingdom? Jesus says, I'm here to lay waste to Satan's kingdom. I'm here to plunder Satan's house, to steal his treasures. And the subtext here is that Israel has become Satan's house and Jesus has bound the strong man. Jesus has bound Satan so that he can plunder, he can deliver those that Satan holds in bondage. And Jesus asks them a question. He says, if, if, if I cast out demons by Satan's power, by whose power do your sons cast them out? There's evidence that in the first century, Jews were practicing a kind of exorcism. The historian Josephus writes about some of their strange methods. They had some weird rituals and ceremonies that we would look at it and we'd say, that's voodoo is what they're up to. Um, like putting a special ring in someone's nostril and trying to suck the demons out their nose. Or, or driving demons away with incense or burning animal entrails in the room of someone who was sleeping. It's, it's like witchcraft. And they were doing this in Israel. So Jesus brings this up publicly so that they know that he knows what they're up to. And so that the crowds listening, again, so many of his, his uh, words to the Pharisees aren't so much about winning the Pharisees, but about... Um, gaining the trust and, un and, and understanding, the uh, articulating clearly his, his mission in front of the watching crowds. And so Jesus says, you know, I, I want you to know that I know what you're up to, and I want everybody else here to know what you're, what you're up to. Uh, Jesus is casting demons out by the Spirit of God. Jesus does this with only the command of his voice. He doesn't need incantations. He doesn't need paraphernalia. And his work is effective. Jesus is binding Satan. In, in the temptation in the wilderness, Jesus defeated Satan. Jesus told the apostles when they came back after, after uh, working uh, healings, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Uh, Satan's authority and influence is being cast to the ground. Satan's kingdom is being undone. Revelation tells us that Satan has been bound. And since the coming of Jesus, the power of Satan has never been the same. Satan was decisively defeated at the cross. The gates of hell have been breached. Uh, the enemy is not yet completely conquered, but Satan's power to deceive the nations the way he used to deceive the nations, that power is no more. James says in his epistle, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You are not powerless today before Satan. You are stronger than Satan because all you have to do is resist him and he will flee from you because Jesus has bound the strong man. Just as he said here, Jesus has bound the strong man and we are his plunder. We are the, we are the treasure. 
Well, Jesus isn't finished addressing the slander of the Pharisees. He says in verse 31, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the son of man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. This passage is often pulled out of its immediate context and it's read as a warning against this unforgivable sin. And then people with tender consciences worry about whether they've accidentally committed a sin that puts them beyond forgiveness. But what Jesus says here is tied very specifically to the situation at hand. What's happening? Jesus's critics have looked at the work of the Holy Spirit and they have declared that's the devil's work. And if you do that, if you don't receive the work of God's Spirit as the work of the Spirit, it's not just that you won't or or can't be forgiven. Um, It's not just you won't be forgiven. You can't be forgiven because you've cut yourself off from access to forgiveness. If you're in the desert and you're dying of thirst and you crawl through the desert and you come up on a pond of cool, clear water, but somehow you convince yourself that that water is poisoned, you'll you'll die of thirst because uh, you have um, convinced yourself that the thing, the source of life is corrupt. Well, Well, that's the same thing that's going on here. The only unpardonable sin is rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit because you're cutting yourself off from pardon. Some people have said that this sin that Jesus is talking about can't even be committed today. I'm not sure about that. It's still possible to look at Jesus, to look at the work of Jesus and say, he wasn't real. He couldn't have done all that. He didn't, he didn't rise bodily from the grave. And, and doing that, refusing to recognize the work of Jesus cuts you off from the saving effectiveness of his work. But, but if you're worried that you may have accidentally committed the sin that's unpardonable, it's a, it's a good sign you haven't. See, if you, if you care about sin in the first place, it's because God's Holy Spirit is at work in you and on you, and you're receptive, you're open to the Spirit's conviction. And that's exactly what's going on here with the Pharisees, is that they're not. They're closing off, they're walling themselves off to the work of the Spirit, even saying that the work of the Spirit is the devil's work. And they're putting themselves in an unforgivable position, cutting themselves off from pardon from redemption. Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words, you'll be justified, and by your words, you'll be condemned. Who does Jesus sound like right here in this little section? Sounds a lot like John the Baptist, doesn't he? John asked for fruits of repentance. That's what Jesus is talking about. John talked about the judgment day to come, just as Jesus is doing here. John called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. What what does that mean? It's like they're baby snakes. They're sons of the serpent. They didn't listen to John, and they aren't responding to Jesus either. These men are evil trees that bear evil fruit. 
And the evil fruit specifically that they're bearing right now is their evil words, which flow out of the filthy cisterns of their hearts. Their mouths reveal what is in their hearts. They have just accused Jesus of working black magic. Where does a lie like that come from? What else is down there? What else are you harboring that you just haven't said yet? What are you thinking but not saying? You see, even casual words reveal deep attitudes. How often have you heard someone slip up and say something out loud that they, they didn't really mean to say out loud, something that they were thinking that revealed their true intent, the true affections of their hearts? And often when somebody does that, they'll say, oh, I was just joking. And you know they weren't joking, that they really meant what they said, um, which means that self-control over the tongue really begins with self-control over the mind and the heart. If you don't want things coming out of the spout, they better not be down in the well. If you don't want things coming out here, don't harbor them down here. Control your heart and control your thoughts before um, spewing out things that are, are not helpful or unholy. And the warning is here for all of us. Jesus says we're all going to have to give an account for our careless words. Words are powerful, especially this reactional stuff that I was talking about in the beginning. It's so easy to dismiss. Oh, we're just typing characters in the internet, and it's just flying back and forth. No, I don't think we realize how words are, are, are so powerful. We have this ability to wind each other up to stir each other up to bitterness or stir other people up to complaining or to blasphemy. We provoke each other with these really unhelpful, unfruitful discussions. It's something that P, um, uh, Paul picks up on in his um, instruction to young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He sounds a lot like Jesus does here. And Jesus is talking about things coming out of the treasury of your heart. And Paul addresses this to to Timothy, he says, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. And so if you want what's coming out to be edifying, pleasing to God, you have to rearrange and clean the furniture of your head and of your heart. He doesn't stop there. He says, Flee youthful lusts. And I think when you think of the word lust, you think automatically of, of, of sexual temptations. But that's not all that is taken into account when, when Paul says flee youthful lusts. Youthful lusts also, there, there tends to be this kind of compulsion, this attraction to the current thing and communicating about the current thing in such a way that it wears it out and wears everybody else around you out. It's this kind of fomenting irritation and, um, and contentiousness that Paul corrects. It's the very next thing he says. So when he says, flee all youthful lusts, he's not just talking about sexual temptation, and he, and he says what he means here. He says, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, but avoid foolish and ignorant disputes knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God will perhaps grant them repentance so that they may know 
the truth. The Pharisees were pursuing youthful lusts in saying whatever is coming to their mind, in stirring up people against the Lord Jesus. Don't imitate the Pharisees whose mouths are full of cursing and deceit, full of deadly poison. That's Paul's correction there. Well, they've made their accusation. Now they want a sign. Uh, Jesus, we want you to prove who you are. Verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. In other words, what they're asking is, Jesus, okay then, if you are the genuine article, then give us some evidence. We want a sign that authenticates that you really are casting out demons by the power of the Spirit. It's kind of like Satan demanded signs from Jesus in the wilderness. Make these stones into bread. Throw yourself off the top of the temple. Now, these critics say the same thing. If you really are the son of God, then prove it. Do a trick. Do a miracle. And, and this is after everything that Jesus has already done. He's just cast out demons, and he healed a blind and mute man, and they have taken that, and they have weaponized it and tried to use it against him. Why would he give them something else at this point? He's not a circus act. He's not a sideshow. He's not doing these things for their entertainment. He is not obliged to do whatever they demand of him. Like um, in the parable of a rich man and Lazarus, the rich man says to Abraham in, in Hades, he says, send somebody to my brothers and let them know about this awful place. And Abraham said, even if we send someone back from the dead, they will not believe. And that ended up being prophetic, right? Because Jesus, in fact, comes back from the grave and they don't believe him. That generation did not believe. Um, so, so the point is, is that um, God is not obliged to do uh, magic tricks for atheists when they say, you know, I'll believe if God will just send a, a lightning bolt out of the clear blue sky. Well, um, if that were to happen, you would have all kinds of ways of explaining that away. That wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. I'll tell you why that doesn't work. Is because you already have the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You already have the cross. You already have the empty tomb. And you ignore that. If you can ignore that, what is going to prove it to you? If you're going to ignore Jesus, what else is going to, what else is going to do the trick? And so Jesus says, you know, I'm not giving you a sign. I'm not doing anything for you. You want a sign? Here's your sign. Go read your Bible. Go read your Bible. You have Jonah, right? Think about that. You're Bible teachers. You know God's word. Okay, start with Jonah. And by the way, the men of pagan Nineveh listened to Jonah and repented. And there's a greater prophet than Jonah here. Jesus says, the queen of Sheba came to Solomon, and a greater than Solomon is here. Uh, there, there is more willing and receptive and ready faith among the pagan nations than there is among this generation of Jews. They're, they're in a land overrun with unclean spirits, and, and Jesus doesn't submit to them. He doesn't, 
He doesn't um, give in. He doesn't give them what they're looking for. He points out their sin instead. He continues with a parable. He says in verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it also be with this wicked generation. When one demon gets cast out and life gets reordered and everything's swept and put in place and it's not replaced with something else, uh, the demon comes back and says, oh, look at this clean room. I'm gonna bring all my friends and the last state is worse than the first. So that's exactly what's going on here in Israel. Jesus is driving the demons out of Israel, but unless... Israel becomes the dwelling place of God's spirit, they're gonna be worse off than they were at the start. And that's exactly what happens. When Jesus leaves, when he ascends to the Father, the demons are gonna come back in in stronger numbers than at the first. By the end of this generation, Israel is overrun by this frenzy of demonic chaos which leads to the final destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. There's a principle here about what happens when you drive out demons, when you take off sinful behavior and you don't fill the vacuum with good, fruitful, helpful behavior that pleases God. How often have you seen someone conquer one addiction? Maybe they white knuckle their way through um, exercising self-discipline and correcting some area of their life but it turns out that that just opens themselves up to all kinds of other uh, very destructive, unhelpful behaviors and addictions. This parable is illustrating what's happening. Nature abhors a vacuum, and a life is either going to be dominated by Satan or it's going to be full of the Spirit of God. The house of demons must become the temple of God's Spirit or you end up in just a perpetual revolving door of demons. I wish I had more time to develop this, and we may have to come back to this at some point, but this is so instructive to parents and to churches because we rightfully eject all kinds of things we believe are unhelpful or bad or unwise or unsavory, but if we don't replace those things with good, righteous, holy, happy things, we're just creating a clean space for a new crop of demons. Uh, what what we, we ought to aim to do is to replace every no with a but yes. No, no, sweetheart, we're not gonna wear that. No, we're not gonna wear that. But we are, we are gonna do this. And we are gonna address this. No, we're not going to go to that place and do that thing. But we are going to do all of, all of these things. If you don't fill the space with happy, holy, blessed things, you're just creating a, a, a space that's, that's ready for more addiction and more uh, wickedness and more evil. You're, you're just populating the world with no's and you're giving them a negative, your children, you're giving your children a negative vision of the Christian life. It's just a nice, clean place for demons to inhabit when they leave the house. Again, that's something that we need to develop uh, in more detail at a later time. And I hope we'll get to come back. The final challenge here comes from Jesus' own family. Um, in Mark's gospel, Mark gives us a little bit more background. It looks like Jesus' mother and brothers 
are worried about the path that Jesus is headed down. They know what is going to happen if he continues to have this kind of intense conflict with the Pharisees. And so they want to talk some sense into him. Uh, Verse 46 of Matthew 12. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus has an opportunity to say here, you know what is really important above all things? Fidelity to my natural family. That is, that is most important. I mean, it's, it's really teed up here for him to say what is most important. His mother, his brothers are outside. They want to talk to him. And he has an opportunity to say here, you know what? Loyalty to my kin is way more important than my loyalty to you people. Uh, Devotion to my people who are ethnically, genetically most like me is more important than this. Jesus could have propped up his Adamic family, the Adamic family and said, you know what? This is what it's all about. I'm glad that my mother and my brother showed up here because it gave me an opportunity to teach you what is really most important. My family is more important than you all. And, and if he had done that, everybody would have kind of understood. That, that would have probably been pretty popular. But he didn't do that. He does the opposite. Who is his family? Who is he most loyal to? Where does his deepest devotion on earth and where does his allegiance lie? Under God, where does his allegiance lie? It is to his disciples. And so he adds, whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. The primary allegiance of Jesus under heaven is to the people who obey his father. And therefore, our primary allegiance is the same. Our primary allegiance, our identity is with Jesus and his people. Our primary identity is with the church. And I pray that my natural family is always a part of that. But if my family departs from Jesus, I'm not going with them. I'm, that, that, those ties are dead until the Lord resurrects them and brings them back to the church. But I'm not leaving. My loyalty and devotion to the church eclipses. My devotion and allegiance to the church far outshines my devotion to my blood family. And so my primary identity then is not found in the color of my skin or in my last name or my natural family. My identity is with Christ, in the body of Christ. And baptism marks out the boundary of that family. Why? Well, my family's not eternal. My family's going to die. This nation is not eternal. There's no promise that this nation is going to last forever, ever. There's no promise of that. It's not even a promise that uh, in 10,000 years, my ethnicity, whatever that is, is still going to be around. But the church is eternal, and that's where my allegiance and my hope and my identity lie. And Jesus exemplifies that. Jesus demonstrates that. Rather than reacting to his family's expectations, he reasserts his mission and who his people are. My people, you know who my people are? The people who obey the Father, way above and beyond every other identity or allegiance. Throughout this entire section, Jesus is always taking the initiative. He is on his Father's agenda. He doesn't allow himself to get dragged into the agenda of wicked, delusional men. He doesn't get pulled off course. He doesn't take the bait when he's goaded or tempted. He doesn't act like the men who oppose him. 
He isn't reactive. He could have had all kinds of excuses for why he's having trouble keeping disciples or, 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 or why his ministry is impeded. Oh, there's so many, so many forces at work uh, to slow me down and to keep me from being effective. But he, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He keeps on doing what he's called to do. And for those of us who've been steeped in this culture, especially a kind of passive evangelical culture, the way that Jesus handles these things is shocking. If it isn't shocking, you're not paying attention because he directly opposes how we expect pastors and elders and Christians to respond. In the midst of conflict, we are accustomed to seeing apologies for things that aren't sin. We, we're used to seeing people say, I'm sorry, for things that aren't even sin. We, we see capitulations and bending over backwards to make friends with accusers. And we would define Jesus' behavior here as mean or unloving or uncaring if we saw it in someone else. To be sure and to be clear, Jesus absolutely does pour himself out completely for our sins. He gives his body entirely for the salvation of his bride. He holds nothing back for his people, but he does it on his initiative. He isn't coerced. He isn't bullied into it. He does it on his time and in the will and the pleasure of his father. Everything he does is for the pleasure of his father and in obedience to his father because of his true strength, which is grounded in his identity and his mission as the beloved son. So Jesus doesn't live in a constant reactive state. How much happier and how much more at peace would you be if you lived like this? To think, does this thing deserve my time, my emotional and mental energy does this thing really affect my life? What is, what is God calling me to do here when, when I'm being called to respond or react to this thing? Am I going to spend 20 minutes making a meme about it? Is that what I'm supposed to do? Am I, am I supposed to share or post on this? Or, or maybe ignore 98% of the nonsense that, that comes across my life and use my energies in moving my life forward in a way that pleases God. The next time you feel a compulsion to participate in the outrage reaction theater, um, ask, why am I being made to feel this way? Who wants me to react? Who wants me to respond? Who wants me to be distracted by this thing? Who does it benefit for me to be distracted by this thing, to, to take the bait, to, to get reeled in to reacting to this? And, and ask, what is God calling me to do? In, in the vast majority of these situations, the, the only thing we do is pray. We can pray. Occasionally, there may be something you can do to obey. There's some call to action. And if there is an actual, concrete, objective call to action, do it, do the thing, and then Move on with your life. Pour yourself into doing what God has put in front of you. What, what is holding you back and what is holding you down in life is likely not all of these things that are outside of your control. What's holding you back is your failure to be like Jesus and do the thing God has given you to do. Uh, not, to not to be reactive, but to be 
deliberate and active and busy with the things God has put in front of you. Again, remember 2 Timothy. I'm going to repeat it again. Flee youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Be patient. And then in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, work with quietness and eat your own bread. That's the example of our Savior. That's the life that pleases the Father. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the example of Jesus. We ask you by your spirit to conform us more and more to his image. Grow us up, mature us, and strengthen us in all these ways we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.